so we're doing a series through the Psalms and Grant started it off last week and this whole sermon series was also Grant's uh, idea. Um, so each week we're discussing a particular topic and going through two Psalms and uh, Grant as part of his uh sort of personal journey through the Psalms the past couple of years has been translating them into his own words. And so he asked for the sermons that each of us preach, um, that we would do the same with the two Psalms that we do, where we translate them into our own words. Hey, Ron, good to see you, man. Um, so the topic that I'm talking us through today is forgiveness. And I'm going to do this through the narrative of David and Bathsheba. Um, Grant really encouraged us to be a little bit more reflective and meditative about our sermon and less intellectual and uh, sort of like less like going to the Greek and the Hebrew and, and stuff like that. So um, the way that I'm going to do this today is I'm going to tell David's story and sort of his own personal reflections on his story via two Psalms that he wrote. Uh, and I'm going to tell that story alongside one of mine and uh, a story of feeling guilt and receiving forgiveness in my journey alongside David's journey. And hopefully that can foster in you guys um, a connection to David's story as well. So this is a story that most of you have probably heard before. And the reason I tell it in various ways and from various perspectives at various times is because it had a profound impact on me. And um, for the worse at first, but I think in the long run for the better. So um, I think a lot of you might know Malini, my girlfriend. Before Malini, um, I was in a relationship that lasted around four years. It started in college, um, and it was fine. It was a fine college relationship, but pretty soon after college, um, I quickly realized that this was not the person I was going to marry. Um, unfortunately for me at the time, this was not an acceptable answer to me. Um, I always pictured. I always had like a. I grew up in the South, so I very much had a ring by spring mentality where like that person who you're dating when you graduate is the person who you're going to end up marrying. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm stuck with her. I guess that's what I have to do. Um, and, but I couldn't, I couldn't let that happen. Like I, I knew that I couldn't marry her, but I also couldn't bring myself to end it for these various reasons. At the same time, I was at the peak of what I now realize was just really uh, untreated and un unsupported depression and anxiety. And it was just a bad mixture that kept me in this relationship for about a year longer than I wanted to be in it. And um, finally ended it. And it was very painful for both of us. And, um, you know, it was hard for me to end because my, my thought was that there was something wrong with me. And this relationship would work if I could just fix whatever was wrong with me. And... And then everything would be okay. And so be, because of a key idea that, because I had this key idea that I was the problem, I carried a lot of guilt during the relationship for like the ways that it wasn't working and after the relationship for the ways that it didn't work. Um, so it ended a year after I knew that it was going to end and it was painful for both of us. So the key thing that I took away from this uh, experience was that I was a deeply flawed, flawed person I was the reason the relationship was fa had failed, 
And in the future, I was uh, completely unable to have a successful relationship, even though it was the thing that I wanted the most in the world. And I just completely avoided dating for years, even when there were people who I could have been interested in and I knew that they were interested in me, I shut it down because I was like, I'm just going to hurt you. I'm not capable of doing this successfully. You know, stay away from me. It's for your own good. Um, but this story is really just one expression of something deeper for me, which is in general in my life, not just in relationships, I carry perceived guilt and wrongdoing really heavily. And it's kind of like anxiety for me. I can feel it in my chest. I don't know if you guys have felt like guilty or anxious or, and you can like feel it. Like I can feel it right below my sternum. Um, I am my own worst critic and that tendency can really bring me down and has a history of really bringing me down to low places mentally. Um, and not only that, but I even go, I look for ways that I mess up. I look for ways, like even if it's not immediately obvious to me, I'll think to myself, I must have done something wrong. I must be messing this up somehow. And I'll look for ways to criticize myself. Um, so for a long time, I had a regular pattern of calling myself stupid. My internal monologue was very harsh, uh, pointing out every little mistake I made in every facet of my life. And this, as you can imagine, made me deeply unhappy. For years, I thought that making fewer mistakes in my life would, be, would make me happy. And while that's maybe true to some extent, it's uh, not maintainable and it doesn't really scale very well into the, every aspect of your life. Um, and it took years of therapy and personal reflection and growth in my faith to realize that what I was missing was forgiveness. I needed absolution from other people and I needed to forgive myself. Fortunately for me and for us, the Bible has a lot to say about confession and forgiveness. And the pattern we see of the people of God in the Bible is one that we should seek to emulate today. One of regular confession, not only to God, but to others, and then seeking forgiveness for wrongdoings. And I'm saying wrongdoings instead of sin because sin feels like it's this thing that the Bible tells you to do or tells you not to do and then you do it. And it's like pretty obvious that it's wrong. Um, like stealing, you know, that's just one of the classic Bible sins. Um, but there are a lot of things that create separation from people and separation from God that aren't just in the Bible called out as sin. And I think we can all feel that deeply. And so that's why I'm saying wrongdoing. I, I, it's not one of the like biblical sins, but really anything that separates us from other people or separates us from God. These can be the weight that we carry. So I'm going to read two Psalms of David that are both born out of the same narrative out of second Samuel. Um, and as I was doing this, as I was experimenting with Grant's prompt and wanting to engage with it more meditatively and, um, emotionally, I found myself experiencing a, a, a couple different emotions, um, reading the Bathsheba story in second Samuel, but also reading two Psalms that relate to the Bathsheba story. Um, in the first Psalm, Psalm 52, I found myself both disgusted by what seems to be a complete lack of empathy for others from David but also envious of him in that he can do something really wrong and he can still look forward to eventual redemption. Whereas I kind of wallow in self uh, flagellation, I guess. Um, and in the second Psalm, I found a beautiful reminder of the levity of life that God offers when we come to him and seek forgiveness and seek to live in right relationship with him and with others. So before we go into the first Psalm, I want to prime you with our sharing prompt for today. 
which I will answer at the end. Um, the first is, when have you seen, so there's an easy one and a hard one. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, we have a sharing time after the sermon where people can come up and respond. It's sort of an open mic sharing. And so this prompt is sort of a prompt for that time. So the first is, when have you seen guilt crush someone or confession heal someone? That's the easier one. And the second one, and this is probably the hard one, is, harder one, is what is the burden that you want to get off your chest today? What is something that has been weighing you down that you would like to confess to God and to others today and feel the weight lifted off your shoulders and out of your chest right below the sternum? So uh, the first psalm that we're going to read is Psalm 51. So, uh, and the second one, Psalm 32. They're both born out of the same narrative, which I'll summarize here. It comes out of 2 Samuel 11 and 12. So David was king, in Jeru- king of Jerusalem, king of Israel. And he had a meteoric rise to kingship. Previous king, Saul, wasn't great, did things that God didn't like. So God basically deposed him and brought David up to be king. So David has been living the life. It seemed like he could do no wrong. He was completely favored in God's eyes. So uh, Israel was at war with a nation called the Ammonites, and they were sieging the city. But sieges take a long time, and David wasn't going to hang out at the siege the whole time. So he was back in Jerusalem. And he saw a woman named Bathsheba um, bathing on her roof. And he essentially abuses his power to sleep with her. Now, the Bible isn't super clear. It doesn't say whether or not she like consented to this whole situation. She had a husband. My sense is that she did not. So the Bible does not give us any indication that she didn't or that she, that she consented. So I'm going to say that David abused his power to sleep with her. Uh, she gets pregnant. And that's very suspicious because her husband is at the war that David has commanded. So David has essentially commanded her husband go to, to go to war and then slept with her while her husband was gone. So he tries to cover this up. So he invites her husband Uriah back and says, uh, hang out, relax, eat food. I don't know, sleep with your wife. That would be great. And he says, I can't do that because I've got brothers in arms who are at the siege and they don't get to do that. So I'm not even going to go into my house. I'm just going to sleep at the gates and I won't receive comfort until my brothers in arms can receive comfort. And David said, well, that is far too honorable. So uh, what he did is he sent Uriah back to war with a letter to his commander, basically saying, put Uriah in the most dangerous place of the battle. And at the next battle, Uriah dies. So David has suspiciously then, uh, you know, immediately marries her and sort of tries to cover things up. So this is bad, really bad. A, a, f- a few series of sins that we would consider very bad. Um, and especially for someone who is so used to being, but also being perceived as upright in God's eyes and being blessed as a result of his obedience. So David was promptly called out by a prophet, Nathan, and he repented. And it's in the midst of this repentance that Psalm 51 was written. So I'm going to read my rewrite of Psalm 51. We typically use the ESV here. So if you want to, I'd encourage you to follow along in your apps or in your Bibles uh, with Psalm 51, but I'm going to read my rewrite here. As I was writing this, I was thinking about the new Taylor Swift albums. And it's like, uh, you know, love story Taylor's version. This is Psalm 51, Austin's version. Yeah, Austin's standard version. Oh, you put that part in there. Okay, that, that was not, uh, okay. Um, I know that you are a loving God. So in that love, don't bring your wrath upon me. 
Instead, purify me from sin. I'm asking you this because I know exactly what I've done wrong. My mind is consumed by it. I know that my sins against others are really sins against you and that any verdict you pass on me is true. And it's not just today. I was born a sinner and I've been one ever since. Even though I was born in sin, I know that you want to see integrity in me. And not only that, but you help me develop it. Please clean me like I know you can. Make me good as new. It has been so long since joyous things have actually brought me joy, but I know they can again. Don't even look at me because I know that I'll offend you until you remove my guilt. In the wake of the sin, change my heart and soul to be like yours. Do all this instead of sending me away from your presence and removing your presence from within me. Bring me back to a place of grace and help me develop a will that will keep me there. I promise I will use this experience as a beacon for hope for others who find themselves in the same place. Save me from the consequences of murder and in return, I'll publicly pronounce your goodness. I know that in this moment, you don't want sacrifices. What you want from me is true repentance and I know that you will respond to it. Despite my wrongdoing as king, continue to support and take care of your people. And if you keep us going, we will be able to worship you to the fullest extent in the way that you wanted us to. So that's the psalm. I want to provide, before we walk through it sort of verse by verse, I want to give a little bit more context of what happens next in the narrative. So after David is called out, he confesses and asks for forgiveness. And Nathan responds with these words. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you, the child that Bathsheba became pregnant with, shall die. That's David's punishment. So I spent a fair amount of time trying to rationalize this psalm because there are things about it that I just don't really like and things that I wanted to explain away. Um, but after talking it through with Grant, he reminded me that the entire purpose of the series is to meditate, not to rationalize. And so let's do that. So in the, in the ESV, the first verse, uh, David asks for mercy. And the question is, does God end up having mercy on David? And I think in some sense, yes. And in another sense, no. He said, I'll say yes, because he doesn't die. And in Nathan's words and in da how David's acting, um, in, in David's words, basically the expectation is you have murdered, you have done this terrible thing. The response is to die. Um, that's your punishment. Um, and Nathan explicitly calls this out and says, you won't die. Okay, that's not going to happen. But your son's going to die. And I'm not a parent, but I can imagine that that almost feels worse that your innocent child who was just born has to bear the weight of your sin, pay the ultimate price for your sin. So David asks for mercy, and I would say in one sense he receives it, and in another sense he really doesn't. Um, and certainly the innocent child and the innocent mother of that child uh, didn't receive mercy. Um, and that leads me to verse 4, where he says, it seems like David makes a really big point of saying that my sin is only against you. Um, I say, against you and only you have I sinned. And that just feels wrong to me. And I know that in maybe some deep theological sense, maybe that's true, that all sins are truly just sins against God. But at the very least, it feels kind of harsh or coarse to not say that it's a sin against Uriah, who you murdered, and against Bathsheba, who um, 
you know, you took against her will and against her, your son who is going to die because of your sin. Um, so he doesn't mention at all that he's wrong to these other people. And that kind of doesn't really sit well with me. Um, but maybe we're, maybe the truth is that we're more compassionate today. We see things in sort of a different way. And maybe this statement just offends my modern sensibilities, but would have made perfect sense to readers back then. Um, in verses 10 through 14, something that really stood out to me is that David, even though he's done these terrible things, David is not staying in a place of pain and self-loathing or self-criticism. Um, he's looking to what's on the other side. He's looking tor- forward towards redemption. And when I first read this part in, the, uh, in preparation for the sermon, I was a little annoyed by this verse. It seemed too fast. Um, it seemed like he should wallow in it a little bit more. And then I realized that was my initial response to that story. And maybe I still feel that way. But then I realized that that's just me projecting because that's what I would have done. Where when I do things wrong, I am not good at asking for forgiveness for other, from others. Or I'm good at asking for it, I guess, but I'm not good at receiving it. I'm not good at actually letting the absolution that somebody else gives me after I've wronged them. I don't let that heal. I carry that burden heavily. And so maybe it's just that I'm jealous of how David can do this. How David can do something worse than I have ever done and receive forgiveness more easily than I have ever received it. Um, Yeah, surprise, I've never murdered. But the things that I have done that feel not as bad, I just can't let it go. I am so hard on myself. And so I think that in this part, even though this verse, the section of 10 through 14 initially was something that I struggled with and struggled with in relation to this story with uh, an ex, but also struggled with in relation to just any guilt that I carry. Um, So in verses 14, 18, and 19, David does seem keenly aware uh, that his sin affects others. So in 14, he asks for uh, forgiveness so that his story can be a beacon of hope for others. And in 18 and 19, he seems to understand that as monarch, um, or that, you know, the, the good of nations rises and falls with, the, um, with God's favor on their monarchs. So that happened with Saul. It's happened with other nations when God was not favor- viewing them favorably. And it's going to happen a lot in Israel's future and is eventually going to be the downfall of Israel and Judah. So David, it does seem to be keenly aware that as king, his sin affects the entire nation. And I, although I still wish that he would have said something specifically about Uriah and Bathsheba and his son, um, and still would have mentioned that his sin was against them, he does at the very least recognize that his sin affects other people. Um, and hit the guilt that he carries affects other people and not asking for forgiveness at, affects other people. And so he asks that God would continue to support the nation of Israel in spite of what he's done wrong. In 16, he says that he won't give sacrifices because they don't delight God. But then in verse 19, he says that if God forgives him, he'll respond with sacrifices. And like he wants um, Jerusalem to be sustained so that um, people can make right sacrifices. And this is a little confusing because in 16, he says, I know you don't want sacrifices and what you really want is a broken and contrite heart. You want true repentance. But if you sustain us, then we will make sacrifices to you. 
And that just seemed weird to have in the, I would expect that in two different Psalms about two different topics, but to have that in the same Psalm felt weird. And the, the way that I'm thinking about it is that if, if I wrong someone, making it up to them, like, oh man, like I was late to this thing. You really wanted me to be on time. I'm really sorry about that. I promise I'll do better in the future. And you might do better in the future, but it doesn't take away the fact of what you've done wrong. And so the person might really want you to be on time, but you already broke that value. And so the way that I think about this is, um, even though David has let God down and he knows that ultimately sin or sacrifice is not what God wants, he also recognizes that uh, sacrifice is part of the contract. It's part of how Israelites express their loyalty and express their repentance to God. Um, so he rec- he's holding intention that like, I know this is not what you really want. And I know that this isn't the core of the issue, but also I want to keep doing it because it's, um, it's how we relate to you and it's how we commune with you. Um, so to summarize the Psalm, we have David admitting what he'd done wrong. Um, asking for mercy in the face of the prophesied punishment in the form of the death of his son and looking forward to reconciliation with God. But this is not where the story ends. So just as God said, and this is going back to 2 Samuel, the child became sick. And David, knowing that a proclamation had already been made that the child was going to die, still fasted and mourned for seven days. So for seven days straight, he laid on the ground and he wouldn't eat with anyone and he wouldn't let anyone take him off the ground. So after seven days, the the child did end up dying. And when David heard the news, he got up, he took a bath, he ate some food, and then he went to the temple and worshiped God. And people around him were a bit confused by this. And they basically came to him and said, what is wrong with you? Why did you mourn when your child was still alive, but now that that your child has died, you're done mourning? It doesn't make any sense. And David says something along the lines of, I was doing those things so that maybe God would be gracious and let the child live. But now that he's dead, fasting and mourning isn't going to bring him back. So David asks for mercy and he gets it, but he doesn't die. But he also doesn't get it because his son dies. And it's not only him, but people around him don't get off scot-free. I mean, picture Bathsheba here. You are potentially, I, I can't say this for sure, but probably, um, you know, taken against your will, uh, got pregnant, your husband was murdered, and then your son was killed. Um, and what did she do wrong in this whole story? Nothing. She took a bath in the place that is the most secret where nobody else should be able to see you. Um, so with that context of how the story ends, we're going to read one other Psalm and the Psalms are not necessarily in chronological order. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot that goes into, I think how they were constructed, but I think scholarly consensus is that this Psalm, if 51 was written in the midst of the David and Bathsheba for, uh, story, This Psalm 32 was written in hindsight. So I'll read Psalm 32, Austin's version. Oh, the bliss of being pardoned by you. Anyone who has been forgiven by you and has no secret in their heart knows true peace. Not confessing and keeping it all inside was destroying me. It was like a poison that was rotting me from the inside out. It felt like you were intentionally weighing me down and I didn't have the strength to keep going. I couldn't bear it anymore, so I told you everything. I didn't keep a single fact from you. I decided to confess and you responded with forgiveness. To anyone reading this, I beg you 
Don't make the same mistake that I did. Confess. Do it before it's too late, before the flood of pain overwhelms you and discourages you from seeking him at all. God, you are like a place to hide from the world. You keep trouble away from me and deliver me from the trouble that I get myself into. To anyone reading this, I will teach you. You can have what I have, but you have to listen to what I say. My instruction won't help if you are stubborn or stupid. This is the power of confession. It will save you from sorrow and bring you into love. For confession separates the godly from the wicked. To all who are forgiven by God, sing for joy. Don't take for granted what you have been given. So right away, I struggle with this. I have been in similar situations where I have felt like I've received enormous grace from either God or from other people. And still my first response is, well, yeah, but I can't believe, I can't believe that I did that wrong thing. Like, I've, they've said it out loud. The Bible says that I'm forgiven. I believe that God is real and that he has forgiven me, and yet I still can't let it go. David essentially killed his son, and he's like, seemingly overjoyed at the, at the outcome here. Um, and something in verse one, just throughout the whole thing, he seems so sure that he's been pardoned. And I think that's one thing, like somebody might say that they forgive me, but I don't know for sure if they actually do, like if they're hiding something from me. Um, and so David just seems so sure that he's been forgiven. And maybe that's because he has a prophet saying that he's been forgiven that would help. Um, or maybe it's because that he truly believes that this, the punishment for his sin would be death and he hasn't died and therefore he has been forgiven in some sense. So he gets these physical signs um, that he's been forgiven. Um, but we don't really necessarily get that in the same way. Ours comes a little bit less from a physical uh, exchange with God or like God's mouthpiece or physical avoidance of death. It comes more from believing believing that God loves you, that the forgiveness that you've received from somebody else or from him is real and that the person actually forgives you and that the rift in your relationship has been healed. Um, have you ever held guilt inside for a while only to confess it? Um, or have you done, ever done something wrong and not told anyone but hoped that somebody would find out so that you wouldn't have to confess it but you also get the benefit of knowing of like getting it off your chest. Um, I remember when I was young, the first time I looked at pornography, I was so ashamed, but I also didn't tell anyone. And of course my dad was far smarter than I was and he had all the controls on the family computer, which is the computer that I used. And, um, and so um, when he first confronted me about it, I was so ashamed and I was so happy because I could finally say, I'm so sorry. I know what I've done was wrong and I can finally get it off my chest. And I remember my dad being so gracious to me in that moment. And I think that was one of, when I think of what it means to truly be forgiven, I think of that. I think of that moment and just the joy of getting it off my chest. And James echoes this idea in uh, James 5.16. 
therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So in the New Testament as well, in the Old and New Testament, there is the sense that um, confession and forgiveness have healing power, that they have the ability to make things new, to heal rifts, and to purify. So why does it feel so good to say it out loud to others? Um, some people, I think, just want to confess. They want to be known. I think some people want to be known deeply, and one of the things that can be known most deeply is the, the sin of which you are most ashamed. Um, but I don't know. I actually, I tried to formulate it, and then Grant encouraged me not to formulate it. Um, but it's hard for me to put into words why confession feels good. But there's something from 3,000 years ago and 2,000 years ago in this Bible and today where you just sort of... It, we're all having the same experience of confession really being a, a weight lifted off the chest. But one of the struggles of believing in a good and gracious God, can we pull up verse four? One of the uh, struggles of believing in a good and gracious God is that when you go through hard things, at best, God let it happen to you, and at worst, he's doing it to you on purpose. And David expresses this here. He, he felt like God was weighing him down. In the ESV, it says, I felt like your hand was heavy upon me. And whatever bad you're experiencing, God could have stopped it or God could have not done it. And he still does. And the Israelites especially thought of God in this way, in a way that we, I don't think we can really relate to. God's you know, there was an old covenant and a new covenant and the way that God relates to his people. God is the same yesterday and today and forever, but we can see in the Bible that the way that he relates to his people is a little bit different. And there's much more of a sense of retributive justice. Um, so the Old Testament says, you know, eye for an eye. And then Jesus comes and says, please don't update right now. Okay. And uh, the New Testament says, um, turn the other cheek, right? And so there's a great sense that like when you do something wrong in the Old Testament, you will be punished for it. Um, and David was feeling that heavily. And I've heard from people in, who go to our church who say that they have felt like God is against them, which is actually pretty cool in some sense, because that means that even though you're going through a hard thing, you believe enough to know that if you're going through a hard thing, it's actually an experience you're having with God, which I think is a good place to be, but it's a tension to hold, that you trust and believe in a good God who can forgive you, and there's also something bad happening. And that's hard, and that's what David's struggling with in verse 4. And I've definitely struggled with the same thing. But it's nice to know that I'm not alone, and that's the re that there are echoes of my relationship with God in David's relationship with God 3,000 years ago. Um, we see again in 6 and 8, like in the last psalm, um, that David uses his experience as a warning to others. And I think this comes from his knowledge that sin affects others. So forgiveness can have a big effect on others too. If you sin, that has a big effect on others and like your, the guilt that you carry can have an effect on your community. Being forgiven by your community and by the people you've wronged can have a big effect on them too. Um, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that at the end when I share my response to the sharing prompt. Um, in verse 10, can we pull up verse 10? I thought about this one for a while. Um, my, this translation sort of echoes my best understanding of it is that the difference between a righteous person, what the ESV says is that the difference between a righteous person and a w wicked person is that they trust God. 
And in the context of confession, I think trusting God means you trust him enough to, that he's real, that he exists, and that he's good enough to forgive you. And so it's the forgiveness that comes out of trusting God that separates somebody from being wicked, um, from being righteous. And the Bible is very clear, Old Testament and New, that righteousness does not come from within. It does not come from ourselves. It comes from, it's a status that God places upon us. And um, I think we see here in verse 10, David saying that God will put that status upon those who trust in him enough to seek his forgiveness and receive his forgiveness. So if in the last Psalm I was frustrated with David, then in this one, I'm envious. How does he move on so quickly after recognizing that he did something terrible to this woman, that his son died as a result, that he could have put the kingdom in jeopardy because God will punish kingdoms as a result of the king's wrongdoings, and he moves on so quickly. He seems so easily able to accept and cling to the fact that he's forgiven. I have a really hard time letting things go that I do wrong. And it took me years to, I'll say recover, recover from that last relationship I was in. It took me years to even try online dating. <laughs> and when I even went to online dating, to, to even work myself up to it, I had to tell myself that I'm only going to go on one date. Even if it goes amazing, I'm not going to do it. Because I had to work up in myself the courage and the confidence that I wasn't going to, I had to work up in myself the courage and the confidence that the things that I did and the ways that I was wrong in that relationship, first of all, that I, first of all, that, you know, because of other things going on in my life, they might not have been as bad as I thought they were. Cause again, uh, I carry my guilt really heavy, um, perceive real or otherwise, um, realizing that some, of the fault was on her instead of completely on me, but then also realizing that I am forgiven and that I can do better next time and that God's working in me as a result of my repentance and my desire to do better. Um, I had a really hard time writing the sermon. I felt like I wasn't putting a lot of, as much time into it as I should have, even though this is the one by far that I've put the most time into it and is also in some ways the most personal. And don't worry, the irony of that statement is not lost on me. I've been struggling with forgiving myself about not doing well enough about writing a sermon about forgiving myself. Um, but I really am trying. And in the eldership candidate process that we've been doing, so Grant and I and John, who I think will be speaking soon, are all part of becoming elders for the church and part of what I have really received in that group, um, and especially from Fred, is being able to say the things that I think are the worst about myself and still being loved anyways. So I'm here to tell you what David is here to tell you. Is that whatever you've done, no matter how many people it has negatively affected, no matter your perception of yourself or of God, David's message is that God will forgive and that there is a levity to life to be had when you let go of the guilt that you carry. Jesus tells us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. David is setting his life up as a beacon and basically begging you 
to follow in his footsteps. Some of us need to learn from the sincerity of David's repentance. Some of us need to learn from David's awareness of how his sin affects others. Some of us need to learn from David's ability to look forward towards redemption instead of staying in the place of guilt and self-loathing. And I think at various points in my life, I've been in all three. The core belief at the center of each of these ideas is the same. It's that God loves you and he's waiting for you to tell him your deepest, heaviest guilt. So our two sharing prompts. The first, share a time when you've seen guilt destroy someone or confession heal someone. The second uh, is to come on stage during our sharing time. And I know this is hard. Come on stage during our sharing time and confess the guilt that's holding you back, the thing that's crushing you. Maybe it's not a Ten Commandment biblical sin. Maybe it's something that feels weird to call it a sin, but it's weighing you down nonetheless. Um, but if you are carrying a burden today, David is showing you the path to healing, and God is calling you to let it go. So my answer to the sharing prompts, when have I seen confession and repentance heal? Um, my brother and I had a typical older, younger brother relationship, and I was not great to him. Um, I was made fun of a lot in school, and I think I, it's a classic story of coming home and needing an outlet for that, and so then would you know, make similar fun of him. And I think that damaged our relationship. I think it made him really defensive to criticism around me. I think it made him really um, sensitive around me because he had such a history of me being, in some ways, not a great brother. And then th through the course of going to a therapist, I told my therapist that I wanted my relationship with my brother to be better. And it wasn't adversarial anymore. And it wasn't like I was making fun of him all the time still, but it still wasn't close. And I knew that there were wounds there that were maybe still open. And he said, my therapist told me the best way to connect and to break down the walls of a defensive person is to say that you're sorry. And so next time I hung out with my brother, I sat him down and I said, first of all, I'm sorry for the ways that like I was childish and the ways that like I wasn't, you know, the way what I received at school, I gave to you, but also I'm sorry that since then, even though I've kind of moved past that phase, I'm sorry that I don't tell you how cool you are. I'm sorry that I don't tell you or that I've never told you that I like you, that I enjoy spending time with you. And we both look back on that 30 minute conversation as pivotal. And we now share everything. And that sense of defensiveness is gone. And in fact, he now sees my therapist and is recovering from some of the same things that I needed to recover from. Confession heals. And the weight that I felt in that relationship is almost gone. But David's calling me today to let it go, and he's inviting you guys to do the same. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the healing power of forgiveness. Thank you that just saying something out loud can do so much to remove its power from us. That just naming it can make it powerless over us. So Father, I pray that as we reflect on your word, as we reflect on David's call, that you would work in us to remember 
how we've seen guilt destroy someone, how we've seen repentance heal someone, and that if needed, we would be able to share today the guilt that we're carrying and get it off our chests. Thank you for being a part of this process. In your name, amen.